You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. I seek refuge with Allah from Satan the accursed in the name of Allah the gracious and merciful. Peace be upon you. Good morning and welcome to the breakfast show the Voice of Islam with uh, uh, Imam Tawkeet and Weed Khan and myself, Wadi um, Uh The time is three minutes past seven, coming up to four minutes past seven. It's Friday, the 8th of December, 2023. As always, we have a packed program this morning on the breakfast show. Uh, the uh, breakfast show is an interactive broadcast. It means that our listeners have the opportunity, the facility, if you like, uh, to call in if they want to and share their views and opinions on whatever is being discussed. Uh, the way to get uh, uh, through is to dial zero two zero eight six eight seven seven eight seven eight. And if you want to use the more modern method of uh, what used to be Twitter X, as it is known now. You can post your comments on Voice of Islam UK. Uh, there are going to be a variety of subjects that we are going to be exploring this morning. Um, um, in the first few minutes, uh, I suppose up to 7.30, we'll be looking at some of the news items that are circulating around both in the Amdi Muslim community within it and also outside in the wider media. So uh, that's going to be in the first half hour. Won't be spending too much time on each, but trying to rattle through as many as these stories as we can during that period. Uh, those familiar with the show would know that uh, we do hone in on two particular stories that uh, we dwell on and spend more time on. Uh, today, we the topics that have been selected, well, the first topic is uh, concerning uh, what can be done or what is useful for multi-religious uh, uh, harmony uh, in this country especially. Um, the title of this particular topic is Enduring Peace Between Muslims and Other Faiths. Uh, and we'll be talking to uh, Mr. Ed Pawson uh, on this particular item. Uh, he's an expert in religious education uh, uh, teaching and uh, part of the Religious Educational uh, Council. So if you're interested in this, then do make a point of remaining tuned in during the period when we were discussing that, from 7.30 up to about uh, 8.15, a quarter of an hour after the news. Uh, Moving on to our second main topic, this is about uh, human development, particularly uh, that of babies. Uh, The title of this subject is uh, Babies as Young as Four Months Show Signs of Self-Awareness. And we hope to discuss this topic with James Webb. Uh, Now, James uh, Webb is uh, um, a doctor and training in pediatrics and working as a clinical lecturer at Imperial College. And in addition to that, we also hope to be speaking to Dr. Alastair Sutcliffe. Now, Dr. Sutcliffe is, among other things, uh, studying pediatric outcomes of IVF. So that will be an interesting uh, uh, discussion with him um, and together with all this uh, we'll be sharing the Islamic uh, standpoint on everything we discuss as always uh, so that will be led by Imam Toki Tanwi so without further ado let me pass the uh, proceedings on to him Assalamualaikum Imam Toki Assalamualaikum Warahmatullah for the introduction and uh, I'll start off with the weather for, for this morning so the forecast for today uh, this is from BBC Weather, is that this morning will start with dry conditions and plenty of wintry sunshine and thick cloud 
will build in from the west in the afternoon, bringing a few blustery showers. And the forecast for tonight is that tonight will turn drier earlier with some clear spells, but spells of rain heavy at times will move in from the southwest in the early hours. And winds turning southerly and temporarily ease uh, somewhat, so that is the weather forecast. It is uh, gone rather rather chilly now. Um, mm. You know, I think uh, although it's been a bit wet uh, in in this morning, but I I think a few days back, uh, waking up, uh, I think it was it was a normal routine just to de-ice the you know your your windscreens mm. of the car. That's, that's if you got out of bed, <laughs> you wanted to stay in your <laughs> in your blanket, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Absolutely. Yeah, so I didn't have that this morning, that trouble of uh, not getting out of the blanket, but uh, um, the, the icing the, the car. The icing, yeah, icing yeah, the car, yeah. Yes, yeah. I think it's it's, uh, it's that time of the year where everyone just gets these sprays and mm. liquids just to mm. just to make sure, you know, yeah. uh, they don't spend too long just yes. uh, de-icing the, the ice from the windows. Yes, and then makes a commitment that they will save uh, the scraper for next year, <laughs> and then invariably you always lose it, <laughs> and you have to buy a new one. Uh, I'm mm. guessing you're more of a scraper. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, a scraper. Yes, rather than uh, using that uh, spray thing. Yeah, mm. I, it runs out pretty quick, to be honest. Uh-huh. To be fair, because you have to use so much of it. So I have used uh, one can, and uh, it, it does. I, I've realized if it runs out fairly quick. Uh-huh. How many times do you, can it can you use it before it runs out? I uh, I'd say uh, it would Once? probably probably get through through the uh, a month maybe. Oh really? Or or okay. a few weeks you could, okay. you could probably get through, uh, right. depending how often uh, uh-huh. you need to use it. I haven't used it. You just spray it and then. Yeah, you just spray it once and it should be okay. fine. You're ready to All go. Right. Okay. Uh, it's quite mm-hmm. convenient in that mm-hmm. sense. All right. And uh, how about you following uh, football these days? Yes, um, Harry Maguire. Harry Maguire has <laughs> got Player of the Month, uh, so I'm told. I'm quite surprised. Arsenal seems to be doing, doing really well in the in the Premier League. Yes, and uh, I think uh, with uh, Manchester City uh, uh, stumbling, they've opened up, uh, if I can remember correctly, a six-point lead. Absolutely. So... That's, uh, that's encouraging for them. And then all the other contenders, like Newcastle losing yesterday 3-0. That was a surprise. Tottenham using, losing yesterday uh, 2-1. Um, so that all that is uh, looking uh, very good for Arsenal. Um, Liverpool, however, uh, uh, are still on their tails. They're actually uh, two, two points behind now. Mm-hmm. With the 34 mm-hmm. points and Arsenal has 36. Yeah. Um, Manchester City uh, would have expected, uh, you know, for them to have started yes. with a better season, but uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, some of the matches they have had, they, you know, they they haven't gone as no. expected. No, and they lost to Aston Villa, I think one uh, 0 it was, and that was uh, that was a surprise. And a uh, draw against Tottenham just yes. recently. Yes. So they've, as I said, uh, stumbled. Um, but uh, the squad they have is 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 way too strong, I think, for them to be uh, lagging any further mm, behind. Mm, it's yeah. uh, it, that is the team to watch and to beat if you want to uh, 
to get the the top spot, and it's something that I'm sure is going to be in uh, in uh, Arsenal's minds uh, because they did falter later on, didn't they, in, in the season last year? And do you think it's Arsenal's season this time? Because they they never seem to quite you know grasp the mm. the victory mm. till the end. They they always always slips out mm. from the hands somehow. Yes. Um, so they were um, real contenders. They had a, a healthy uh, lead uh, last year, but then uh, it all frittered away, and um, Manchester City caught up with them and uh, secured the uh, Premiership title. Um, I suppose this year they they have the experience. Arsenal have uh, the experience of last year, but whether it is going to be good enough uh, to um, overcome. Manchester City's challenge, I'm not sure. Um, I think it's uh, it's doubtful. And then you also have Liverpool. So, yes, it's, it's going to be interesting uh, um, next year uh, as to how how this uh, this unfolds. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the community, uh, you may be pleased to know that um, our... Um, Gardening team secured top top place again in the horti horticultural uh, competition, and uh, got the trophy for the best uh, uh, public uh, garden display. Oh, perfect! Um, here so at the here at Battlefield is where we are wow. broadcasting from. Wow. So this particular uh, venue, which uh, where we have you know, these uh, this gardening team that works all year round. Uh, and very hard. Um, they're um, they're very um, um, happy, or should I say, they're um, very conscious of uh, their efforts, and um, uh, and it's good that uh, their efforts have been acknowledged in this way. Fantastic. And the trophy they won, in fact, is a trophy that they have secured for three years running. Wow. So uh, it's. Uh, it shows um, that with effort uh, mm. and uh, industry um, that um, you can achieve anything. And um, um, these uh, workers uh, certainly do uh, do that. So that's the, that's the good news. Uh, we've been having a lot of peace, uh, prayer for, uh, prayers for peace events, haven't we? There was yeah. one in Crawley recently. There, there was uh, also one uh, just I think last week uh, or this week maybe in uh, Borden as well. Okay. So there have been uh, many peace uh, um, voices for peace uh, conferences mm. around around the country. Actually, mm. um, I had the chance to go to one in Battersea. <laughs> so there, uh, we met, there was different delegates um, from the constable as well from the police. Uh, Buddhist uh, were there, Sikhs were there so people of uh, different communities just coming together and it, I think it was very important uh, you know the, to emphasize solidarity in that in this moment um, and, and certainly uh, I think this is a great opportunity as well to explain the beautiful teachings of Islam as well um, as uh, especially uh, I think with what's what's going on uh, around the world as well as with the Israel and the Palestine as well, um, it's I think it's uh, a lot of people. What, what I've read from the news as well as well that uh, a lot of people have uh, started to read more about Islam, mm. 
mm-hmm. because uh, seeing some of the Palestinians, um, their their resolve and how a lot of the times in such difficult situation they keep saying that you know uh, we've we've left everything to Allah the Almighty and He is sufficient for us. So a lot of people just generally um, have been uh, mm-hmm. focusing towards studying the Holy Quran as well, learning more about Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an article about this as well on uh, on the Guardian. Um, I don't know if you got a chance to read that, uh, Brother Vilid. No. Um, yes, yeah, so very interesting article on there as well where they've highlighted that a lot more uh, people have inclined towards uh, just reading and understanding the Holy Quran as well. Mm. Mm. So, so yeah, of course. I mean, it's this is this isn't. Um, a religious war, but as you've said, um, there there are religious um, offshoots um, that draw people to looking at this from a religious perspective. Um, the uh, church in uh, in Bethlehem, for instance. I mm. mean, I mean, Palestinians are also Christians. Uh, some of them, mm. they've uh, decided not to to celebrate uh, the, the nativity as they used to. Mm. And uh, in order to highlight the plight that they are suffering from, they've also changed the way in which um, the uh, representation of Jesus as they normally would in a cradle, uh, they have changed the represent- representation of, uh, of showing him in a, in, in a pack of rubble uh, to reflect the uh, condition that uh, the Palestinians find themselves in. So it has certainly had uh, have uh, religious uh, consequences mm. of what is happening in 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 Gaza. So we hope that um, um, His Holiness is 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 continually urging us to to pray and also to uh, try and uh, uh, impress upon those people who are in authority to uh, to. Uh, to seek and sue for peace uh, and uh, peace as early as possible. At the moment, uh, the alarming statistic that is emerging is that one child is dying every 12 minutes. Mm-hmm. And that's some, that is something that uh, is uh, unconscionable, I think. Uh, something that we need, to, um, we need to address and need to stop. Um, so uh, I'm sure that this story is going to carry on, but we hope that a resolution can be found very soon. As far as uh, the wider, um, the other uh, main stories are concerned, particularly those that relate to stories at home, uh, one thing that has blown up, if that's the right phrase, um, in the last couple of days is um, this uh, Rwanda policy and uh, the bill that uh, has been tabled for uh, uh, passing in the House of Commons by um, James Cleverly. Um, and the, the new bill is regarding sending asylum seekers uh, um, back to Rwanda. It has run into serious difficulties. Uh, it was stable on Wednesday. Within hours, its immigration uh, minister, Robert Jenrick, resigned, and former Home Secretary, Swella Braverman, issued a statement criticizing the proposed uh, legislation. Both felt the bill didn't go far enough. Uh, the prim- Prime Minister, however, was defined in a statement made uh, in a press-, press conference yesterday. 
Uh, he said the bill was the toughest immigration law ever, insisting that it would prevent further legal challenges, stopping flights taking off to uh, Rwanda. Uh, so, uh, to prevent further legal challenges, me- legal challenges mean that anybody who's seeking redress in our courts would just simply not be allowed. Uh, the uh, bill is in response to the Supreme Court judgment a few weeks ago that ruled that sending migrants to Rwanda was unlawful. Uh, and this bill specifically states to the contrary. So, it is law now to say that... Um, or would be if the bill is passed. It would be law to uh, say that um, uh, Rwanda is safe uh, for migrants and it will be unlawful for anybody to assert otherwise. So that is the impact of the bill and then some uh, commentators are quite um, uh, taken aback by that particular consequence of this particular bill. Um, but uh, whatever... Uh, doors are closed regarding redress in uh, the British courts. Uh, redress can be sought in the uh, European Court of Human Rights. While former ministers say that the legislation does not go far enough, others are claiming uh, it goes too far. It breaches uh, the uh, European law and contravenes our obligations under uh, the European Convention on, on Human Rights. Uh, so, to add to this is the embarrassing announcement from Kigali, the capital of Rwanda, that despite the new treaty they have signed with the UK, they will not be a party to any breach of international law by the UK in, its, in this connection. This is after it had already received $140 million for the government's Rwanda scheme. Another $100 million was uh, paid off to them uh, recently or earlier this year, and £50 million pounds is also going to be paid early next year. So nearly £300 million in total for a scheme that has yet uh, to be enacted. Uh, so th- uh, it is uh, drawing a lot of criticism, understandably. What is perhaps more con- disconcerting is that the scheme represents stopping a very small minority of migrants coming here, less than 0.1%. Uh, and to spend so much political capital and, in fact, money on such a minuscule part of immigration issue uh, uh, may have appeared shrewd at the time, but if it is not achieved, uh, it exposes the foolishness of this this approach. At least this is what some commentators are saying. It has also been argued that if the government is genuinely concerned about the safety of people trying to get to these shores on boats, then wishes to stop the boats um, and wishes to stop them, it ought to make uh, available safer legitimate means for genuine asylum seekers to get here, which is conspicu- conspicuously missing. Commentators argue that at the heart of all this is the unwillingness, uh, not least prompted by uh, pub- the public, in receiving people from other countries irrespective of their need. This does go against the grain of the welcoming nature of this country, which in the past has welcomed migrants, and those migrants and this policy of welcoming migrants have only gone to benefit the nation and not been to its detriment. Um, and, uh, you know, I, we have repeated this uh, in the past that um, as far as Islamic teachings are concerned, that um, if you help somebody in need, then Allah will also open the doors for help uh, in resolving uh, your matters which require uh, assistance, and we 
know, also know that um, from uh, the sayings of the Holy Prophet that you are not diminished uh, if you uh, assist others, but uh, you benefit, and this has been the experience, and perhaps there has to be a, a change in change in policy. Um, another story that caught my eye was about marriage and blood pressure. Uh, so it's reported in the Times uh, earlier this week. And now uh, they were um, uh, relating uh, details of um, research that was conducted on 30,000 heterosexual marriages. And they found that if your spouse suffered from high blood pressure, it was more likely that you would uh, be suffering from it as well if uh, not then, then later. Now, this reflects similar lifestyles and dietary habits more than anything else. This study was published in the Journal of American Heart Association and suggests that GPs should offer married couples BP checks, blood pressure checks, uh, together. The study showed that high blood pressure was suffered by both partners in 47% of couples in the UK which was higher than the rates in China, US, and India. The study's uh, senior author, uh, Mr. Lee, or Dr. Lee of the University of uh, Michigan, said that people know that high blood pressure is common in middle-aged and older adults. Yet, we were surprised to find that many older couples, both husband and wife, had high blood pressure. Early detection of blood pressure is important. High blood pressure is known as the silent killer because it really has symptoms. It is responsible for more than half of all strokes and heart attacks and increases the risk of heart and kidney disease as well as dementia. And just to uh, dispel any misgivings about marriage in this connection, uh, the research uh, did not show and has not shown that it is because of marriage that partners have uh, high blood, blood pressure only the fact that if one uh, in the couple has blood pressure, then more than likely the other will also develop uh, this condition. And it is, uh, I suppose, a salutary advice to those people in the medical profession, especially GPs, that if they find one in the couple uh, with high blood pressure, then they should also monitor the uh, blood pressure of the other partner so that uh, the disease uh, or this um, Yes, this this ailment can be caught in, in time and uh, treatment can be given. Um, previous studies have shown, and let me just re-emphasize that, reiterate that, that point, previous studies have shown that marriage is good for heart, for the heart overall, because it helps people to stay active and to be less lonely in older age. And this is a view, uh, the, the, uh, the positive view about marriage that is endorsed in Islam. Where, is, where marriage is encouraged. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that marriage is my precept and my practice. Those who do not follow my practice are not of, are not of me. And uh, when an individual has married, he has completed one half of his, of his religion. So it's, there's a very strong endorsement of marriage uh, within Islam. And it's also, uh, as far as research is concerned, med medically beneficial for those people who are in marriage. Uh, as it's as mentioned, it's good for the heart overall, and it helps people to stay active 
and to be less lonely in older age. Um, so that's that story. Uh, do you have anything, uh, Imam Tabir? Yes. Um, so, you know, on a weekly basis, uh, we try to go through uh, some of the virtual sitting His Holiness has with the members of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community around the world. And uh, one such uh, uh, meeting which took place was actually with the office bearers from Trinidad and Tobago. And uh, this took place on the 26th of November 2023. Um, and uh, this is historical in, in the fact because I don't think His Holiness has had a meeting like this, a virtual meeting uh with the with the office bearers from Trinidad and Tobago so i guess f- from a community point of view is very historic um and uh, his holiness uh, spoke to different office bearers on in how they are managing their departments and how they're looking after it <clears throat> such as he, uh, one of the members he spoke to was a missionary uh, Abdul Noor from Valencia who was serving as the national um, uh, out, outreach uh, and relation de- department um, and uh, who was originally from Haiti and he reported that in the last three years uh, there have been five to seven new converts uh, people who have accepted Islam Ahmadiyyat um, in his region and His Holiness then added to that that ask uh, your your different secretaries of that department that they should work hard they should make a proper plan and try to get the message of uh, across of Islam as much as possible um, and uh, upon this uh, Brother Noor um, he said that he will implement on it uh, God willing um, and His Holiness uh, then prayed for the individual and said that may Allah help those who work hard um, and also Huzur addressed another missionary uh, Bashir and uh, who was missionary in Tobago and he was next to report and hearing his name His Holiness recognized that he was Ghanaian and asked that he came to Trinidad and he reported that he came in August after the uh, annual convention in UK and His Holiness asked that if he was well settled in Trinidad, to which he replied in affirmative and said that um, the the head of the community, uh, the Emir, uh, he is helping uh, with with their work in Tobago, and is only a smart and said that then you are a very lucky person that he is helping you. So uh, this these uh, sittings that his holiness has are very much valuable. And you can read more about this on Al-Hakam uh, Weekly. Uh, you can also watch snippets of these meetings as well on uh, our YouTube channel, MTA News. Uh, not only are they very faith-inspiring for the community itself, but also um, for, I, I guess, for everyone really listening, um, it can be a source of guidance to all of us. Um, and we can see that, you know, how busy His Holiness is not only with this day-to-day task, but also addressing the community in different matters. So do uh, benefit from these platforms. So that is it uh, in, in terms of the news. Uh, we're now moving on to our first main segment, 
and I'll pass the mic on to Brother Walid to start us off uh, with the first segment. Um, yes, Brother Walid, what are we discussing? Well, um, as mentioned at the top of the program, it's going to be the first of our main stories, the enduring peace between Muslims and other faiths. So uh, this is uh, something that uh, we picked up, I think, from one of the websites, but um, I may be wrong. Uh, yes, it's one of the review of religions, in fact. Um, uh, and, uh, well, this is how it's uh, it's being reported. It says, imagine if we could find out how Jews lived in the time of Andalus in Spain. We would then know that, for example, a certain uh, Tovia uh, wanted to marry Faiza, but it was not easy for him because he obviously had a very bad reputation. Uh, this is known thanks to the discovery of hundreds of thousands of Jewish manuscripts found in a synagogue in Cairo, uh, the synagogue of Ben Ezra. This discovery is special for Jews because it speaks of their own distant past. And one of these documents is a rather lengthy record where Tavia uh, swore in front of witnesses that his life would henceforth be blamelessly boring. Uh, he pledged to avoid uh, mixing with bad company for the purpose of eating, drinking or anything else and not to spend a night away from Pfizer unless she wanted to. Uh, these facts were shown to the public for the first time in an exhibition at Cambridge. Um, so this is uh, basically uh, an intro to the way that uh, this uh, particular um, item is being um, being reviewed um, and uh, imagine if we could find out how Jews lived in the time of Andalus in Spain uh, and as mentioned uh, this is uh, something that uh, we are learning about through the discovery of uh, Jewish manuscripts that's been found in this uh, particular uh, synagogue. Uh, they, they, these records show uh, a different aspect of the issues and daily routine that the Jewish community had in Spain. And thanks to them, uh, we are able to establish that until the caliphate was abolished, uh, they had a peaceful life with no uh, restrictions in the practice of the religion, uh, their freedoms of expression, and no friction uh, with the Muslims. So that's an interesting, interesting point. Another point that uh, that emerges is thanks uh, to this and other discoveries, we know that uh, in Spain, Jews, Muslims, and Christians um, thrived as a community, living and working together. We see how Jews were able to participate in all sectors of the economy and were not uh, prohibited from even the most uh, um, profitable enterprises as the uh, as a trade in trade um, um, especially in trades in furs and spices uh, this is shown uh, through the lives of the um, characters that appear in the ancient manuscripts which include among others a, w uh, a wandering uh, son-in-law uh, a, a wife uh, uh, threatening uh, with a hunger strike, uh, but only during uh, the days, uh, during the day, as protest due to her husband's behavior. A Jewish woman in love with a Christian doctor and a rich uh, woman uh, excommunicated 
for adultery. We also know that during the Muslim reign in Spain, some Jews reached uh, the level of vizier, vizier or chancellor, such as the uh, well-known Samuel bin uh, uh, Nagrela, who reached the highest position in the court, uh, or, or Ibn Hasdai in Zaragoza, uh, secretary of uh, the chancellery of the Taifa of Zaragoza, um, a literary figure, a philosopher and physician of Al-Andalus. And one of the best-known figures was uh, Maimonides, a Jew born in uh, Cordoba, considered one of the greatest scholars of the Torah. He worked as a doctor, a philosopher, astronomer and rabbi and was uh, a point of reference for Jewish and Muslim philosophers and scientists. Another point that emerges is that one, on one occasion when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was alive, a funeral procession passed in front of him and immediately stood up and out of respect and a companion of his told him that it was a funeral of a Jew, not a Muslim. Hearing this, the uh, Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, replied, are not uh, Jews human beings too? So with example like this, the Prophet taught the early Muslims that respect for humanity is more important than race or religion. It transcends race and religion. On another occasion, following altercations between Muslims and Jews, some Muslims misappropriated some of the Jews, uh, the fruits and animals belonging to the Jews. The Holy Prophet of Islam was furious when he heard about this and said, Allah does not allow you to enter the houses of the people of the book without the permission. Likewise, it is absolutely unlawful to pluck fruits from their orchards. Uh, though this is uh, this and many other instructions uh, the um, um, through these uh, this and many other instructions the Holy Prophet instilled in the early Muslims the importance of treating equally and giving equal rights to other members of society regardless of their faith or origin and at a later time during the Caliphate of Hazrat Umar he once came across an elderly non-Muslim who was living in appalling conditions. Uh, on seeing this, he exclaimed, By God, it is not right that during his youth uh, we, should be, we should benefit from his abilities and leave him uh, to suffer in old age in this way. He then instructed that he should be given uh, a pension until his death, and furthermore, he established allowances for all poor and needy non-Muslims in all provinces. Uh, this story is an example of how the Islamic government uh, took responsibility for the basic needs uh, of the people, regardless of their religion. This uh, enabled the inhabitants to prosper and develop their studies and uh, careers, uh, another example uh, is a letter from an historian uh, peace, uh, a priest uh, contemporary, contemporary to Hazrat Umar describing uh, the political conditions um, of the area. Uh, and uh, uh, to a friend, he says, Muslims protect our religion, uh, respect our priests and uh, Pharisees uh, and uh, have... Uh, granted a land to our churches and uh, the um, the passage uh, goes on uh, to illustrate the um, way that uh, harmony was fostered between different um, religions uh, through 
the advice and guidance given by the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, the advice enshrined in the Holy Quran, and then its enactment uh, in the lifetime of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his, and his successors, and also those who followed. And uh, let's not forget also there was this um, um, charter that was given to the monks of uh, the Catherine Monastery, uh, which also uh, indicated uh, and illustrated the uh, tolerance that Islam showed and that particular charter uh, very graphically, very categorically uh, stated uh, that uh, and Christians should be allowed to uh, express and follow and practice their faith as they wish to and they should not be harmed or molested in any way. Uh, anything on uh, an Islamic point of view? Uh, yes, uh, but I think before we do um, look at the Islamic perspective, I do believe we are joined by our first uh, guest speaker, and uh, that is uh, Mr. Ed Pawson. And uh, Mr. Ed Pawson, he is an expert in uh, religious education. He's a religious education teacher and part of the Religious Education Council. So uh, I think without further ado, let's get him on. Asalaamu Alaikum, peace be upon you, and thank you for joining us today at the Voice of Islam radio station. Thank you for inviting me on this morning. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask you, um, firstly, that what are some key factors that contribute to fostering peace between Muslim and uh, non-Muslim communities? What's your views on that? Hi, Ed. Well, thank you very much for having me on this morning. Uh, it's a pleasure to be speaking to you uh, and talking on your station this morning. Um, so a bit of background. My name's Ed Pawson, and I'm a, I've been a religious education teacher in schools for 25 years, um, and I now work um, uh, as an advisor to schools, um, and in particular around um, religion and education and interfaith understanding. Um, I've had the pleasure of bringing school students to Ahmadiyya uh, mosques um, in many parts of the country over uh, many years and enjoyed the the real um, hospitality and um, welcome uh, that I've always experienced from your mosques. And so I'm really pleased to be able to just talk about, about that. I talk about that a lot in schools. Um, so uh, I also do quite a lot of interfaith work. I work in the southwest of England and um, work a lot with uh, interfaith groups and um, uh, working to foster uh, better relations. So you asked particularly about fostering peace um, between Muslims and non-Muslims. And um, I think the key is um, is understanding. We need to understand each other better. And um, that, um, that allows us to build bridges and... Um, uh, creating understanding isn't always easy because the media doesn't always help us um, but we need to recognize our differences but also value our differences uh, I think British culture has changed in that way which is in a positive way that uh, we see differences perhaps hopefully as being good things more than in the past where we sort of wanted to other people a bit more and um, I think schools are vital in in helping that process of of uh, being more open to each other, to trust each other, and then um, to feel um, uh, to replace fear with trust. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, especially, you know, you've mentioned that uh, you have come and you've brought a lot of uh, students as well, 
um, to the complex here in um, the in the Beit of Tumos, the House of Victories. Um, just wanted to get your opinion on that. That what what has been the feedback of students as well, and just generally the general public when they have. Uh, visited the mosque as well because quite often uh, what happens is that uh, whenever we have these interfaith events as well one question that I always get asked is that people usually say that we thought that because we're not Muslims we're not allowed to come to the mosque so they're very surprised uh, because they didn't know that uh, actually the mosque is there for everyone and everyone can come and uh, just just benefit from that Yeah and I think I think key for me is about his hospitality. Um, the students I've brought have loved being fed. Um, food and 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 a, and a drink is is very central to human kindness. And um, I, I think um, I have had the experience of taking students to different mosques. And in some mosques, the students will be given the Quran or something something very very religious as they see it and mm. they come to your mosque and they're given food and the, the warmth of that you feel it very tangibly the children sense that they're being welcomed and and this that hospitality is um and i think under your banner love for all and hatred for none i think i think it's very important that 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 is seen as reaching out um that religion is understood as not something just for us on the inside that actually, as you say, to open the mosque. I mean, I, we had an open day uh, uh, in my local mosque in Exeter recently, and it's just really vital to say that we're open. Come and visit us. Come and see what we do. This isn't something secret. Uh, this is where we worship, and we need a safe space to do that. But, but it's not something hidden. That, um, and I think education is really vital in opening up those spaces. Absolutely. And uh, just uh, one last question from my my side, Ed, and I'll pass the mic on to uh, my uh, my host, the, the host, uh, Brother Valid. Um, my question is that: What are effective strategies for addressing misconceptions and, and stereotypes that exist uh, <coughs> between the the Muslim communities and and other communities? Um, well, well uh, uh, from my perspective, education is key here, but. But I also do a lot of interfaith work, and um, I mean, we had a lovely event the other day for Interfaith Week. I think you know, event Interfaith Week is a good week; it should be all year. But in Interfaith Week, we had an event called Meet a Muslim, uh, Meet a Buddhist, Meet a Jewish Person, and we just had an open an open afternoon where people came and talked to each other. And um, some people knew a lot about different communities; others very little. And we met in a safe space that was um, neutral and um, I think just you know we, we live in these ghettos don't we which where we speak to each other and social media probably doesn't help that um, but um, I think it's about getting those messages out it's about having events and being public um, and for me it's about education and having good materials to to encourage you know encourage teachers to come to your centers um, so that teachers know who you are and that they can feel a lot of people I work with who teach in schools they've never met people from different minority faith perspectives they're teaching about these things in the classroom especially in my area in southwest where there are fewer um, minority and faith groups and um, 
you know, just actually that experience of saying, oh, I, you know, I, I met someone, I talked to someone from a, a different faith or, or belief community, mm. um, and now I feel I have a connection, I, they're a human being, I understand that, and they take that into the classroom. And I think, I think teachers are very important conduits for that, to just pass on that sense of, 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 of understanding across cultures. Absolutely. Yeah. Good morning, Ed. Um, uh, I just want to know, do you think that um, um, the education can uh, play a significant role in promoting mutual respect, tolerance, and peaceful uh, coexisting among different uh, religious communities? You mentioned, uh, you know, uh, factors about um, uh, meeting, visiting mosques. Uh, what kind of impact um, can can education have further? What else can education do, and how can it deliver mutual respect and tolerance? Yeah, no, I really do. And when I when I talk to young people, um, in general, they're very open. They're very they want to know. I mean, but children aren't born racist. They're not born with a religious um, intolerance. They're born and they grow up wanting to to know about the world and we have to we take need to take that responsibility to give positive messages um and my experience is that young people are very you know they they want to know about other people and they're inquisitive and you know they're they're shut down and they're narrowed by their other experiences but schools are vital to to open up those opportunities and to continue to help children to see the world from from other perspectives other than their own family or their own their own community and and in that sense um i think that the, the idea that religious education in particular but it's also about other values that come into schools you know schools need good religious education curriculum they need good opportunities to come and meet people either coming into their schools or or children coming out to to places of, of worship or um, or uh, to visit and, and meeting meeting people, just seeing people and realizing and understanding that human beings have different values and ways of living and dress and food and diet and so on. But underneath it, we share a common humanity, which actually we we need to learn about to understand. And if we don't learn about it, then then um, trust can't be developed. And do you think that faith schools, by their very nature, uh, are such that uh, they act against uh, that particular, um, that particular, um, that particular trend? Faith, faith schools are complex because um, many schools with a religious character. I prefer I prefer to call them schools with a religious character because. I think the word faith schools implies that they're, that all of them are delivering a faith in a narrow way, which is intolerant of other faiths, and that's not my experience. I think most schools with a religious foundation are actually very open, mm-hmm. more open many, in many ways, many Church of England schools, many Catholic schools, many schools with different faith positions are, are often more tolerant because they understand that faith is such an important feature in people's lives. I think some faith schools are narrowing and, and only teach about their own faith. Those are the ones that I worry about, where pupils are, go there 
to only learn about their own particular religion. And I think those are worrying. But I think a lot of faith schools do better religious education. They're more open to learning about others because they recognize how important beliefs are in our lives. Um, I think some schools that are not faith schools don't recognize um, uh, the, the need to le- for pupils to learn about uh, other cultures and religions and faiths. Um, so I think it's complex, and I don't think I don't think it's one thing and not the other. Mm. And what about the role of religious leaders? Um, do you think that they, how can they work together to promote peace and harmony in diverse in a diverse society like ours? No, I think that's very, very, very important. I, um, uh, one of the things I do is to um, coordinate Holocaust Memorial Day events every year for schools and the public in my area. And I always make sure that the imam uh, is, is there and that people from the local Muslim communities are there and other religious communities. I think to be seen and to be taking part in multi-faith events, um, to be to be seen together that I think there is a perception that religious people don't get on with each other and that religious leaders are, you know, oppose each other. And I think to see religious leaders um, shaking hands and being on the same platform and being part of the same movements um, is vital because I think our public mind wants to see those people as being separate and yet actually uh, we need to work against that. Okay, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for your uh, for your um, wisdom. Thank you, Arich. Thank you so much. Lovely okay. to be with you. And um, uh, love for all and hatred for none. Um, it's, that's very important. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it certainly is. Okay. Peace, people, on in Islamicum. You know, I, I was just thinking that uh, it's it's very beneficial um, that children, you know, do get these activities where they go to. Um, different mosques or different places of worship, but but I think f- even for adults, you know, they should they they should be a way where you know groups can go into and and visit uh, different places, mm, um, well, synagogues and uh, yeah, mandirs. And yeah, yeah, because mm. I I feel as if that uh, because as as uh, as Ed mentioned that right now education is key. Uh, for us to understand and uh, understand each other's religion and each other's practices um and the more that we're open to it the more we'll understand about each other um and and I quite often what I've seen is that when we hear of incidents of uh, people who show maybe violence or maybe they might have misconception about the other religion is because they don't have in, enough education um but quite often you would find that this would be amongst young adults or adults in general uh but kids usually <laughs> i've seen they're more open uh because they're learning they're going to different mm. places of worship and and they're learning like that as well uh so so thank you so much for that uh, for Ed for coming on uh, we do have a clip that we want to play with our listeners and this is on the question are the differences that we find in world religions to today a result of different teachings brought by uh, the respective prophets or are they created by the followers of those religions so we're just going to be listening to that 
you mentioned the other day that apart from Rasul Akram there are there were other law bearing prophets now I want to know if ba- the basic laws brought by these prophets were vastly different and uh, because as we see religion today there are many differences in the practices between the different religions and I, <coughs> I was just wondering if these practices originate from the laws brought by the prophets or are they all completely man made well the holy quran throws some light on this subject by telling us that uh, the fundamentals of all laws were the same and no laws whether they were preliminary or uh, Uh, appeared very early in the history of mankind or later that is not relevant no law whatsoever whenever it was revealed uh, approved uh, idolatry for instance each law that was revealed to man spoke of the unity of god unsplit unity of god also every law mm, enjoined upon is, uh, the followers to um say worship allah and to spend in the way of allah and to spend on mankind and be kind to them you know these sort of things this has been mentioned in a surah lam yakunil ladina kafaru min ahl alkitab wal mushrikin hatta yan ana yan munfaqin hatta yatihul bayna hatta tati munfaqin hatta tati yahul bayna رسول من الرسول من الله يتلو عليهم صحف كتب فيها كتب فيها كتب قيمه صحف متاهره فيها كتب قيمه وما امروا الا ليعبدوا الله مخلصين وما تفرقوا قال هي وما امروا ليعبدوا الله مخلصين له الدين ويقيموا after this fundamental teaching had been revealed to them wa ma tafarruqu illa min baad ma jaathum bayyana they did not differ before this bayyana this very clear manifest law had been revealed unto them so your question is answered in this way that fundamentally all law that was revealed to mankind was the same yet having known it very clearly when everything was made manifestly clear they differed with each other that is to say they were distorted in their own mind so they distorted the teaching which was given to them you have sons please <laughs> but uh, why why is there such a great difference in some of the basic practices of the different religions like the way people say prayers or praise god or things like this no this is not basic the way you say a prayer is not basic prayer itself is basic le yabudullah mukhlisin allahuddin hunafa this is basic the attitude 
of a worshipper. He does not mix up his worship of Allah with anything else. He is completely straight in his direction, in his bearing, and uh, is uh, submissive only to Allah. That is the description of this verse. So, if that remains, then the differences of posture do not mean anything. That is not considered by the Holy Quran to be fundamental. So, whether you say prayer by sitting or by standing or do evolution or not, I mean, all these minor details are not fundamental in Islam, according to the Holy Quran. So that was a short clip um, for our listeners, um, and this uh, was on the question of the differences that we find in world religions today a result of different teachings brought by their respective prophets or are they created by followers of those uh, religions. So there was uh, the fourth Khalifazim is a Tahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on him, on, uh, who elaborated on that. Uh, so we're just going to be going uh, to the 8 o'clock news now and after that uh, we'll be uh, discussing uh, this discussion further. Uh, so don't go anywhere, we'll be um, coming back after this 8 o'clock news and uh, discussing this particular uh, subject in further detail. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. In the name of Allah, the gracious, the merciful. Assalamualaikum, peace be upon you, and welcome back to the breakfast show. You are joined by myself, Tokir, and Brother Ruleed here in the studio, Voice of Islam. And we're just uh, looking at our first segment the enduring peace between Muslims and other faiths. Um, we do have another clip we want to play. Uh, for our listeners and uh, this is on the question that um, what other recorded instances exist where non-Muslims were permitted to pray as they wished in uh, Muslim mosques so we know uh, from uh, the life of the Prophet that uh, the mosques are not just for Muslim but everyone can uh, share the mosque as well and a particular example we find is when a group, a Christian group from Najran, when they came to visit the Prophet themselves, um, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, very graciously granted his mosque for them to pray in when uh, it was their time for prayer. And uh, through this example, it shows that uh, you know a mosque not only is it for a Muslim, but is for everyone. Uh, to remember God and uh, so this is the question and uh, let's listen to the clip uh, which the fourth Khalif Hazrat Mirza Tahir Ahmed may Allah have mercy on him on uh, what he elaborates on this an excellent example was shown by the Holy Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam when he allowed a delegation of Christians to say their prayer of their own way in his mosque would Hazur most kindly advise us whether we find at any other occasion in the history of Islam when a similar delegation of non-Muslims representing their religion was allowed to pray in a Muslim mosque in their own way, observing the as teachings far as I remember, of their religion. You have already asked this question before, haven't you? No, not Hazur. I, I think that's so. what I think, Hazur. Sure. 
That's what I think. I don't know whether anybody can remember that. Was this question asked before or no? Well, it's something similar than it was asked. Maybe perhaps. similar as yes, well. Yes, right. The fact is, huh? I mentioned it. This, this aspect. I think it was, uh, this issue was discussed here in public somewhere. Whether it was his question or some, some other occasion, I don't remember exactly. <coughs> the fact is <coughs> that such incidents are only recorded when their recording means something for the future, for the people, for the future generations, when they have some historic import. So, if any Tom, Dick and Harry had done this, or is doing it, nobody would record the, those events. How many virgin births are taking place in the world? And who takes, who makes, into, goes into the trouble of recording it historically and making such a fuss about it? Only one virgin birth, that is of Jesus Christ, peace be upon him, has been given such importance because that was special. So there might have been many events in the history of Muslims where various non-Muslim visitors were provided the facility of saying their prayers in Muslim mosques. There might have been. But because nobody would care to record such events uh, as uh, you know, as something very important, so we don't find any record of such events in Islamic literature. But and everything done by Ahmad was very special. Even the most minor things, minor in the sense that in ordinary life, these things are never related about people, even about kings. But those minor things were preserved about Allah and they were recorded in Islamic traditions and history books. How he ate, how he did, how he walked, how he absolved himself and how he slept and how he woke and how he did this and did this and how he did that. All these minor things of ordinary life have been recorded uh, about Ahazur sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So it is because of his importance that this event which we have noted has been recorded. But that doesn't mean that uh, this occurred only once. Might have occurred many times. But with one condition. La tadu maallahe ahada. This is also a very important condition laid down. This is why during my opening uh, address in Spain, I repeated this invitation to all, all the audience and those to whom the message would be carried, amen, that if they want to say their prayer in our mosques, the doors would remain open for everybody, with one condition which has been laid down by the Holy Quran, innal masajida lillahi falata du maallahi ahada, that these mosques are built entirely and solely for the worship of one God and one alone. So if you have to worship that one God, if you tell us that we are not, we are only going to worship one God, then you may do it as you please, in the way you please. 
But if you tell us that you have come here to worship Jesus Christ or Mary or who the Holy Ghost or anyone else in the mosque, then we are not permitted to, by Allah, to provide you with this facility, to extend you this uh, facility. If somebody is lying about it, then we are not concerned. Let him. You know, we are not going to try to play God. What we are obliged to do is simply this, that if someone belonging to any religion, he says, I, have to, I want to worship Allah, and I believe in one God and I want to worship Allah alone, can I do it in your mosque? We would say, every Ahmadi would say, yes, go ahead and do it. Most welcome. But if someone says that I am going to worship Kali Devi, can I use your mosque? We will say, no, please. <laughs> Go to some other place. This is not the place to worship Kali Devi. This is against the objective of, the build, of this building. So that was a short clip of the fourth caliph of the Amdiya Muslim community of Zatayr Ahmed. May Allah have mercy on him. And... Uh, He's explained it very well that uh, the mosque itself, you know, it is, it is a place of worship for everyone. But he also explained the verse of the Holy Quran, which says that uh, you know it should it should be the worship of one God, uh, nothing, no idols, and uh, you know any 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 anything other than that. Uh, so very beautifully put and if we look at the example of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him the um, we see that he was a champion of religion and cha- a champion of peace and uh, through his examples which is well recorded we we see that how he always preferred peace um, and uh, and, and he championed peace throughout and despite all oppositions and challenges he proved that peace can only be established in the world by following Quranic teachings and both phases of his life early in Mecca under opposition and Medina in authority are examples as to how he turned his followers into champions of peace and the Holy Prophet peace be upon him always preferred peace over war or strife and uh, the one example of this is the Treaty of Hudaybiyah. Um And uh, apparently weak conditions were accepted as part of the treaty, but Allah, the, he, but Allah, he, the most powerful, turned it into a clear victory and never did he take the initiative to attack he, on attack on his enemy without prayer prior provocation and when he was attacked first by others he would resort to prayer and only under divine instruction would he go for a defensive battle and that too only until the enemy's transgression was put to an end and there can be no better example of the peaceful nature of his character than the fact that he established a very kind peace inducing code of ethics for war for the Muslims in today's so-called world of religion and ethics of kindness, compassion and justice are totally forgotten whilst this king of world peace, the Holy Prophet 
maintain peaceful principle even in the battleground and thus presented a model that is a guidance for all mankind to come. And it truly is a beautiful example that uh, at the peace treaty that he preferred um, that, you know, the Muslims they themselves when they had uh, when they all came to perform a pilgrim of the of the of the Kaaba in Mecca, uh, they were denied entry of of that, and rather than retaliating at that time with the companions, uh, which numbered <coughs> fifteen hundred over fifteen hundred at that time, uh, he decided to resort to peace, and uh, such examples. They truly showed that uh, he was a champion of peace. And also the conquest of Mecca is another self-evident example of this. All his bloodthirsty enemies were forgiven at this time and thus once again creating an unparalleled example for all times to come. And it is narrated regarding the conquest of Mecca that uh, 10,000 companions of the Prophet uh, had uh, returned to Mecca and at that time uh, the people of Quraysh they were truly vulnerable and uh, we know that they had caused a lot of damage they, they had inflicted a lot of damage upon the Muslims but having said that the, the Prophet peace be upon him he forgave all of them and this truly is an example of how he was a man of peace um, and I think with that we can close this particular segment um, and I'll pass the mic on to Brother Vli to start us off with the next segment Thank you for that uh, Imam Thakir uh, Yes, let's uh, move on to the uh, second uh, big story that we are going to be addressing This is uh, regarding nurturing I suppose uh, raising uh, children uh, and uh, the title of this particular topic is Babies as young as four months old can make sense of how their bodies interact with the space around. Uh, this is according to new research. Uh, and it's something that has been picked up from one of the websites, Science Daily, in fact. And, um, well, certain points uh, emerge from uh, what... Uh, the, this research or this uh, particular article has to offer. It says one of the points is that um, when uh, the um, uh, a bat was close to them on the uh, on the screen, uh, when the ball was was close to them on the screen, the babies were presented uh, with a touch, uh, a small vibration on their hands, whilst their brain activity was being measured. The data collection for the study was conducted at Gold, Goldsmiths uh, University of London. The researchers found that from just four months old, babies uh, show enhanced, uh, enhanced um, uh, sonatosensory, uh, that is tactile brain activity, uh, when uh, a touch is preceded by an object uh, moving towards them. Uh, Dr. Gialia Orioli, research uh, fellow in psychology at the University of Birmingham, who led the study, said, Our findings indicate that even in the, final uh, in the first few months of life, before babies have even learned uh, to reach 
the, for objects, the uh, sensory brain is wired up to make links between what babies see and what they feel. This means that uh, they can sense the space around them and understand how their bodies interact with that space. This is uh, sometimes referred to as uh, a very personal space. Uh, the researchers um, also explored how an unexpected touch would uh, affect some of the uh, older babies in the study. Uh, they found that in babies aged eight months old, when the touch on the hand was preceded by uh, the ball on the uh, screen moving away from them, uh, the baby's uh, brain activity showed signs that they were surprised. Uh, Andrea Bremer, professor of development psychology, uh, commented, seeing the older babies show surprise re uh, responses suggests that they had not um, expected the touch due to the visual direction the object was moving in. Uh, this indicates that as babies proceed through their first year of life, their brain constructs a more sophisticated awareness of how the body exists in the space around them. We will be discussing um, all this with an expert shortly. Um, but let me just um, um, uh, introduce who we have on the line. It's uh, Dr. James Webb. Um, let me just get my uh, questions in order. Um, thank you very much for joining us on the, uh, on the breakfast show, Dr. Webb. Uh, good morning. It's a yeah, pleasure to be here. Um, yes, um, uh, we're looking at um, this particular um, um, aspect of uh, child awareness. Um, can you elaborate on the typical development, uh, uh, the typical developmental milestones related to infants' interactions with their uh, with their environment around the age of four months? Yeah, so I think from the time of birth, children develop very rapidly. We normally separate this development into four broad areas. So in terms of what they can do, the gross motor things, their whole body, what movements they can make with their fine motor, things like their hands, um, and then looking at their hearing and how they interact with other people. So at around four months of age, we'd expect babies um, to be able to, to lift their head up from around six to eight weeks. And by around six months, they'll be starting to sit in a slightly sort of curved back. In terms of their sort of fine motor and vision, from around six weeks, they should be able to follow objects. And by four months, they should just about be starting to reach for some toys. Um, at around four months, they might be starting to make some cooing noises. And the other big milestone is, in terms of responding to their environment, is that we expect young babies to be smiling responsibly. So that's seeing someone else smiling at them and then smiling back from around six weeks of age. Mm-hmm. And what are some of the key indicators of healthy sensory and uh, cognitive development in infants at this stage? So lots of infants will develop slightly differently, but there are some sort of really important markers that you'd expect and milestones that you'd expect children to be reaching by certain times. So, for example, whilst we said that most children will follow objects with their eyes from around six weeks of age, we would definitely be expecting them to start to do that by the time they're three months old. Um, and similarly, whilst they should be starting to reach for toys at around four months of age, 
that's definitely something they really should be doing by about six months old. And the other probably really important milestone in this group is is the stat smiling responsibly, which really almost all children who are developing normally should be doing by the time they're about eight weeks old. So s- smiling is by, uh, by eight weeks old. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. That's that, that idea that you know, not just a, a, a smile, perhaps as you know, a, an expression, but a smile that's triggered by someone else smiling right, at them, right, right, which right. shows that sort of the, they 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 can see well, they're recognizing the expression, and they're responding appropriately. Mm-hmm. Um, are there um, specific sensory experiences that play a crucial role in? Uh, early early cognitive development I and mean, i think this this is a really tricky question to answer i think i mean the the main thing is to remember that these babies are essentially they're learning and developing the whole time um so that it isn't so much that there is a sort of single um experience or sort of shortcuts that can can help with, with this the, the most important thing for these children is the interactions they have the interactions with their parents the interactions you know, with other family members. Um, and really it's, it's supporting that and allowing them to learn and develop because they, they are learning and developing the whole time. And not just when we want them to, not just when they're in a, a baby sensory class, but they're learning and developing every moment of, of their days. Giving an environment. How does that impact uh, a baby's early interactions uh, and development? So we we know that the the home and the caregiving environment is hugely important, um, and you know there's very good evidence um, that if if babies don't get that those early um, stimulations, that they can really struggle. And we know this from some examples, such as unfortunately. The, the orphans in Romania who, who grew up in very deprived environments during the, the, the 80s um, who had enormous problems with development. Um, we know that the, the most important thing is, is supporting children and protecting them from some of the, the harmful effects of things like, like unfortunately, deprivation, poverty, providing them with a, a supportive, um, nurturing environment that allows them to grow and develop and to reach their full potential mentioning earlier about uh, reaching for toys by the time they're four months, eight weeks old, they should be responding to smiles. Will they be, will they be delayed if uh, the environment is not right or the, care, uh, or the, uh, uh, the care, caregiving is not, uh, not appropriate? Um, so unfortunately, that can cause delay. As the, the evidence is really sort of most strong for the, the more severe um, side of delay and, and absence and, and like I said we know things like the, those unfortunate children in the Romanian orphanages and we also know that children who grow up in less enriched environments do tend to develop slightly slower mm-hmm. um, and that's why it's so important to, to support this development even from the very early stages. Yes certainly um, and can you can you uh, um Tell us something about the research findings on the importance of responsive parenting in this age group, uh, in the four-month age group. So I think this responsive parenting is this idea that um, it's sort of a, a suggested way to parent, um, and the idea is that parents will observe their child, 
um, will try to interpret the, the signals that their child is, is giving them. Obviously, in a four-month-old, it's going to be non-verbal sig- signals. Um, and then they will try and respond in a consistent way to the messages that the child is trying to give them. Hmm. Um, and the, this is one of the, the better studied sort of ways of parenting um, in this age group. There's some very good evidence that it can help um, help normal development, help children to do better. I think it's particularly been studied in perhaps populations who are more at risk um, of, of delayed development. Um, and certainly I think if, if you were asking me, is it the best way to parent? Unfortunately, we, we don't have the, sort of the scientific data there. I think it's worth thinking, you know, there's perhaps the opposite to this is things like the more um, regimented, structured parenting um, advocated sometimes. But it, I think even in those cases, there's still this idea that what you should be doing is you should be responding consistently to your child and you should be making sure you're meeting their needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is probably actually the, the bit that's most important, not necessarily how it's done, but making sure that they, they have what they need and have this cons- consistent, uh, responsive interaction. What, what do you mean by to ensure that they have what they, what they need? In what respect? Um, so I think e- even at just a very basic level, um, making sure that they have, they're fed, that they're warm, um, that they are safe. Um, and that they are in an environment where they don't feel scared, they aren't um, living in fear of uh, erratic or unpredictable behaviours. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, this, this sounds like <clears throat> the bare minimum, but it's worth remembering, you know, even just this week, data mm-hmm. came out suggesting that 20% of all children in the UK are living in poverty, mm-hmm. um, which is, is awful. Um, and, you know, these are... These are our future, um, the future of our country, not just our children. But, you know, I, I still find it boggling the idea that, you know, six of the children in my son's class is at primary school might be living in poverty. You know, the fact that this, this is happening in the UK and what is meant to be a very rich and developed country is is awful. Mm. No, certainly, yeah, it's certainly worrying. Um, are there links between... Uh early environment interactions and outcomes in childhood or adolescence? So there, there are, and there's, there's good evidence that what happens in this early period affects children not just through later childhood and through adolescence, but you know, throughout the rest of their lives. Uh-huh. Um, so I normally work in, in a neonatal unit, um, so looking after babies who are born earlier who are sick, and we can see evidence that what happens there can affect them you know, throughout their childhood and, and into adulthood. There was some very important research done in the 2000s by a team in Colombia with uh, Professor Charpak, who showed that if you take these, these very vulnerable, fragile babies um, and actually take them out of the incubator when possible and allow them to spend time skin to skin with their parents in, in what's called kangaroo care, mm. This not only helps them to be more stable in that immediate period, but it, having followed up these children through adolescence and into adulthood, she's shown that there are changes in how their brain grows, they have improved quality of life, um, and, and do better. So this, this early period is really crucial, which is why it's so important that we should be, as a society, supporting um, these young people and making sure they have the opportunity 
to strive and reach their full potential in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've read uh, that uh, your research uh, is focused on outcomes of neonatal care and which outcomes matter most to former patients, uh, parents, healthcare workers and researchers. Can you tell us a bit more about uh, your findings? Yeah, so um, there's a, a lot of effort goes into neonatal research because you know we as a community are very passionate about trying to do the best we possibly can for these babies who are born too early or sick. Um, but the best way to make sure that all the research leads to improvements in care is to make sure we're measuring things that really matter to the babies when they grow up and to their families as well as to doctors and nurses so we can give them the evidence to make sure they're making the right decisions when they're choosing which treatment to give. So we did some work with a large number of former patients, parents and healthcare workers and we're able to identify the 12 most important things that hopefully all research going forward can measure to make sure we maximize the, the learning from that research and make sure that each baby's journey helps us to learn and to give better care to the babies who come in the future. Wonderful. Excellent. Uh, thank you very much for, for coming on. Thank you very much for giving us the benefit of your wisdom. It's been very informative. Absolutely. I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you very much, Dr. Webb. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Right. Um, we have uh, on uh, line, I understand, uh, Dr. Sutcliffe now. Dr. Uh, Sutcliffe, uh, Alistair Sutcliffe, has been studying pediatric outcomes of IVF uh, uh, and uh, I'm sure um, he is uh, adept at other matters relating to this. Thank you very much for coming on and uh, talking to us, uh, Dr. Sutcliffe. Yes, good morning. Good morning. In what ways might a baby's early understanding of spatial relationships contribute to their over- overall cognitive development? Mm-hmm. Yes, well, there is a, um, a broader issue here, which mm. is that... Um, uh, young babies are um, all um, um, created and born to interact with their environment. Um, so the key thing is that they have uh, normal nurturing, uh, predominantly by their mother, um, normal stimulation, um, consistent with the fact that they can sleep for many hours a day. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, so really... The, the the research that you're alluding to, which I've I've been able to have a look at, is um, it's it's interesting in the sense it's 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 discovering processes which no doubt have already existed. Um, so the baby that won't um, progress uh, will be the baby that doesn't have the the relevant stimulation. We call that neglect. So it, it's I'm, I'm not sure one can focus on a specific. Uh, but the mechanisms uh, of how that interaction uh, become apparent by by a baby in in very early life are are, are starting to to appear. So that's that's the way I would put it to you. Okay. And h- how can parents and caregivers encourage and support the development of spatial awareness in in infants uh, during these early months uh, of life? Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a good question, but I think that the general nurturing is the key thing. So, for example, just for your interest, uh, some people argue that the first point of human speech is with the baby uh, breastfeeding because they they suck with their mouth and they look at their mother and then they so they have that kind of 
eye-to-eye inter- interaction. So normal nurturing is all that is needed. And um, there have been, um, uh, outside of that, there has never been anybody who has demonstrated an accelerated development. I think that children develop at the speed that their God has given them to develop, okay? And if they, uh, if somebody thinks they can accelerate that, uh, they're, they're mistaken, but but that the opposite can occur through through lack of lack of stimulation, inappropriate nutrition, uh, 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 painful stimuli, uh, etc. So it's really about being attentive and doing the things that the tradition of that particular uh, culture and uh, uh, n- um, maternal um, uh, skills uh, requires. Hmm. I know we're talking about uh, the. Uh, condition uh, of babies in the first few months, but how receptive uh, is is a baby in the very early year, early uh, moments of, uh, of 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 his life after birth? Um, does it uh, is it worth talking to them, or is, uh, are we just satisfying ourselves? Does it respond uh, in any way? Yes, yes, yes. As I said, uh, nurturing normal stimulation. So babies are actually very smart. I've been. Uh, Alhamdulillah, looking after babies for 32 years, and I can say that they're very, very smart, and people uh-huh. absolutely underestimate them. They look passive, they lie there, but you can gauge them with a smile from six weeks, particularly the mother's face. Even very tiny, premature babies, and I'm talking about babies where the entire foot would fit onto the um, the thumb, the main part of my thumb. That's how uh-huh. tiny they are, so you have to imagine that. They can do things like pull out their lines and things like that when they, uh-huh. when they don't want them in. So, so uh, human infants are, are smart from the beginning. And mm-hmm. an example of that is that as their babble develops, we call it polysyllabic babble. Mm-hmm. Um, the babble of a baby corresponds with the pattern of the language of the mother. Oh, okay. Um, I asked that Sorry. question. So, so they're very smart. <laughs> right. Um, I asked that question because one of the practices, uh, as you may know, with Muslims is that when a baby is born, um, the call to prayer is is uh, recited in one year. Um, yes, I'm aware of yeah. that. Yeah. So, uh, does it does that have any any impact? Uh, do you think? I mean, do, does the baby actually, in any way, uh, uh, is receptive to that? Huh. Well, I think it's it's a very small amount of stimulation, so I don't mm-hmm. think it's going to achieve any uh, major goal. Um, but babies are, are, have been shown to, uh, through other research that I'm aware of, to to respond uh, differentially to their mother's voice, ah. uh, even from um, even from birth mm-hmm. to other to other voices, and that's because they're picking them up clearly in utero. So mm. I think it, it, it's not harmful, um, but I don't think it would have a powerful effect on itself. Okay. Um, the, are there cultural and monumental factors that may influence the rate of which inf- uh, infants develop spe- uh, spatial awareness? Only, only in a negative way of neglect, so uh, um, n- not in a way of, of, of making uh, a child of that. As I said at the beginning, that the, the ability for, human beings have not proven a way of accelerating a baby's development, but they can decelerate it, so to speak, by lack of stimulation and neglect. So, for example, if mother is depressed uh, and doesn't interact with the baby, 
Um, but there are lots of things which happen in pregnancy and round about birth which can cause damage to the baby's brain and of course that's uh, that's a different sort of baby. Mm. Um, I've got my colleague with uh, with me if if you don't mind asking uh, answering a couple of his questions as well. Thank you Dr. Yes, Sata. certainly. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, good morning, uh, Dr. Alistair. It's uh, great listening yeah, to morning. you. Um, uh-huh. I wanted to ask you how my advancements in technology such as virtual reality or interactive toys uh, play a role in studying or enhancing the infant's uh, spatial awareness. Yeah, um, <clears throat> I think there's a theme here. <laughs> I need to be I need to be fairly concrete about this. Um, as yet. Uh, there, there hasn't been anything which makes a child advance beyond normal stimulation. Now, a baby won't make much of a, a digital interface because mm. their vision isn't adequately developed. They can't even see into the distance till they're two, three months of age, mm. and then their little faces light up when they see mother. Okay, so uh, 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 I think that's uh, 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 not going to happen. Um, and in fact, my uh, my work, I, I, just a private plan, but I'll share it with the, with the listening public, when I'm 70, which is 10 years time, I intend to give up my professorship at UCL and move to a, another line of work, and that is uh, p- purchasing, inshallah, a, a nursery. And when I have that nursery, one of the things that I'm going to avoid <laughs> is any sort of digital system. I'm going to uh, b- bring babies up in a traditional way mm. uh, with um, traditional toys, which, which have been developed over many, many uh, tens, if not hundreds of years. So uh, I think what it is is love, warmth, gentleness, um, appropriate stimulation within the confines that, as I said, babies often sleep for many hours and that's their natural way, and and letting them gently explore their environment. There's no uh, uh, place, in my view, for for those advancements, uh, not with babies. That's very interesting what you've mentioned. Then I wanted to get your views on what what you think, because sometimes what happens is that parents, uh, they just t- turn the tv on and let their young uh, babies you know just watch uh, tv and that becomes the norm you know whenever uh, they're busy they'll just turn the tv on or they they'll just give them the tablet do you think what's your views on on this practice should there be if if there is a limit what sort of limit or time frame would you give to that um, I think that there's only really any role, very, very, very limited role for television for, for, for babies, for reasons I've said. But they need to be proactively interacted with. However, there is a there is a program which is probably okay for toddlers called Sesame Street, which has been uh, very carefully uh, uh, researched and, and and it probably has some value to children, but only not not prelingual children. Prelingual children, they'll just gaze. Uh, in fact, it's probably harmful, and that's why I've reservations about uh, what I call screen time, which is uh, uh, well established in older children to be obesogenic anyway. The relationship between screen time and weight is almost one-to-one. Thank you for that. And uh, just one last question from my side is that how might a better understanding of early spatial awareness in inference contribute to our understanding of cognitive development and learning in later childhood. Um, just ask that question again. Sorry, I missed that one. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my question is that: How might a better understanding of early spatial awareness in infants uh, contribute to our understanding of? 
cognitive development and learning in later childhood? Um, I think it's a new field. Um, and so uh, that's um, uh, TBC to be confirmed. So mm. uh, certainly there is uh, huge advancements in uh, how our brains work and discoveries all the time. But at this stage, uh, the, uh, the, the field is too early for me to say how it might have a long-term effect, if, if it does at all. Great. Dr. Sutcliffe, um, um, my notes tell me that you're studying pediatric outcomes of IVF. What exactly is meant by that? Yes, well, um, I've spent, um, since 1993, uh, uh, um, uh, many years studying children who've been conceived with IVF of different types, and that program has gradually expanded over the years and now studying subfertile adults. So when, it, when pediatric outcomes, it just means how are the children doing in relation to naturally conceived children? And uh, have you found any striking differences? Uh, not with term babies, but you're asking a professor with 200 scientific papers in this area. So to summarise it in a sentence, the answer is not, not, not any striking differences. I think I could say that, yeah. In summary. <laughs> okay. All right. And, and despite so many papers, you're still continuing that research? Yes, we've broadened out to uh, a more, uh, a more uh, uh, um, uh, complicated science with some American collaborators and also genetics particularly, but we're also now studying subfertile adults who uh, have been very minimally studied because subfertility uh, itself is a potential sign of a broader uh, health, health issues for these uh, unfortunate males and females. So our work is now focusing and starting to focus on Subfertile. Notice I didn't say parents, but they, mm. they often are become parents. So we're, we're trying mm. to do that, and we're doing this work through population studies, not through individuals. Okay. No, well, thanks very much uh, for coming on. Thanks very much for... Uh, Welcome. Uh, Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, assalamu alaikum to you. Uh, yes, alaikum salam. Bye-bye then. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank Bye-bye. you very much. Bye-bye. 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 Right, that was Dr. Uh, Anastasia Sutcliffe. Um, what else have we got uh, on this... Uh, yeah, we we do have a um, a clip. Um, so now we're going to be looking at the Islamic perspective, and to start it off, uh, we have a clip of His Holiness the Fourth Caliph, Azamzatahir Ahmed, may Allah have mercy on him. Um, and it is on the question that how does the Ahmadiyya Muslim community propose to solve the problem of moral training of children? So very important question. Um, uh, so let's listen in. Azu, my question is about the role of the family and the way divorce rate is just increasing in the Western countries. Uh, some sociologists are with the view that the role of the family is no longer effective, that they are no longer training their children to come out and meet with dignified positions, that the behavior of children are no longer good. And that even divorce rate is so rap- uh, so high now in Western countries, and broken homes are also just increasing. Uh, Hazu, what is the position of Islam on this, or what advice can you give on this? Because there are Ahmadis in Western countries also who are families. My fear is that if, they, if there is no good advice from me on your own uh, from you, they might as well, as well go astray, and that would be very dangerous. Already, I have told you. Mm-hmm. That the safety of all Ahmadi lies in their association and constant deep contact with the Jamaat. 
If you lost to the Jamaat, you lost to the world, in fact. Lost to God and religion, everything. So, this is the answer again to your question. In fact, those families who remain in touch with the center here, with the Jamaat and elsewhere also in Germany, etc., mm-hmm. they have no fears, with the grace of Allah. Western influences which are poisonous are not only directed at people from foreign countries residing in Europe. They are poisonous to the people of Germany, to the people of England, to the people of Ireland, etc., themselves as well. And this is what is worrying them now. The thinkers, the leaders among them who are seriously disturbed by the growth in crime rate and uh, disturbance of peace, they have ultimately to admit, and they do occasionally, that the family breakdown is responsible for this, and children, parents have no hold on their children. So the government is trying to take measures to act the mothers and parents of the youth. It's impossible. The youth, which do not respond to their blood relations, parents who brought them up, if you look back with defiance at them and don't care about for their, whatever advice they render, what care would they have for the government agencies and social agencies and TV propaganda? I doubt very much if it's going to produce any effect whatsoever. The answer lies, number one, in the rehabilitation of family systems. Whatever religion be, it's not just Islam, it's not the case of Christianity, Islam, etc. It is a case of family units which go according to the best noble traditions which they have inherited from the past, inherited from the past. So if they work together hand in hand without raising the differences of ideologies and beliefs, I think it's a joint responsibility of all the inhabitants of a country to work for this noble cause of uh, holding children back to the noble traditions of their forefathers. And for that, you have to take some very wise and uh, well-conceived, well-thought-out measures. It just wouldn't do for you to tell everybody, all right, let's build the families again. How? (laughs) The families which are disjointed, where the cement which binds them together is eroded. What can you do about it? You must find out what are were the binding factors. What has gone wrong with that? Unless you take care of the parents, you can't take care of the children. Because maybe the fault lies there at that level. They have become selfish, they have become involved in their own sensual pursuits, etc., etc., and uh, they have not been paying proper care to the younger generation, either because they do not have much time to spare for them, or because the foreign influence of the streets and around schools, etc., are pulling them apart from them. Both are possibility, the possibilities. So, attention, public attention should also be paid, and uh, family attention should also be paid by raising the consciousness and awareness of what is lacking in the family relationship. Why? Once you know the answers to these questions, I mean, once you know the why is, why it is happening here and why it is happening there, 
Only then you can get the answers, not otherwise. So I'm not going to lecture you in detail as to what I think are the reasons, but I can tell you the approach, the right approach should be this. It should not be on religion, religious divides from Christianity, from Islam separately. It should be on the common human basis first. Humanitarian attitude should be adopted so that you cooperate with each other. If you create religious differences at this stage, then uh, the Muslims will take their own responsibility, the Christians their own, and as such there is a danger of dogmatism playing a role in uh, splitting the society apart. And then they would say, these are the Muslim values, we don't care for that. The Christian values, Muslims say, we don't care for that, and so on. You can, can't, can't cover your head with, with, with a sheet or anything. All these questions have been raised in Europe. So instead of making a campaign on religious ideologies, let's turn to the commonality of all religions, the common morality of all religions, and campaign jointly for that. That plus the analysis of family situations and why the parents have become insensible to the responsibilities they share, they owe to their children. These factors put together, I think, can help us rebuild the society on the correct plans. So that was a uh, small clip of uh, the fourth caliph of the MD Muslim community, Azamad Tahir Ahmed, on uh, this question. And as His Holiness mentioned, that a great duty um, is upon the parents as well. Uh, that they make sure they are attached to the community uh, itself. Um, you know, as as he mentioned, that if you are lost towards the community, then you know you're lost towards the world, essentially. Meaning that uh, it it is basically staying attached to the community. Um, that it will help you with your own uh, morality. Coming to this issue of. Uh, of of parenting, um, you know there is a very famous narration of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him as well, where he said that the most perfect of believers in matters of faith is he whose behavior is best, and the best of you are those who behave best towards their wives. And in this narration, it highlights that uh, the relationship between the husband and the wife is crucial uh, when it comes to the upbringing of children as well. Um, as uh, our children, they they reflect or they see everything uh, which our parents do. And uh, if parents really want their children to grow into members of a righteous society, they should remember that mutual relationship between husbands and wives are going to play an important role in making or breaking the character of their children. The Holy Quran, it also teaches us it teaches us the prayer. And I'll read the full verse, which is from chapter 25, verse 73 to 75. Allah the Almighty says, in the name of Allah the Gracious, the Merciful, and those who hear not false witness, and when they pass by anything vain, they pass with dignity. And those who, when they are reminded the signs of their Lord, fall not down, they are deaf or blind. And those who say that our Lord grant us of our wives and children the delight of our eyes. 
and make us a model for the righteous. And this is a prayer which we should often recite. And this prayer possesses a unique charm and is filled with profound wisdom that both parents in marriage are taught to pray for each other and their children that God may always provide them deep satisfaction and happiness from one another as well as from the children and to make their children the forerunners and leaders of a God-fearing righteous generation. It only takes one to apply this teaching to oneself to fully realize the significance of this verse. And when something is vaguely desired, it may not fulfill the condition significantly. But when it is prayed for it earnestly, then the conduct is bound to be influenced by that prayer. And to illustrate this further, there are many amongst us who desire to be truthful, but seldom is it this desire translated into practice. Those who earnestly pray to God and that he should make them become truthful are influenced far more in their conduct by their prayer than those who merely wishing for something vague. And a genuine effort is made in moulding one's behaviour for the, for the better. And a person would be acting very oddly indeed after such a prayer if he treats his wife and children in a manner inconsistent with the prayer. Um, so ha- having said that, you know, we, we, it is very crucial that, uh, you know, we not only um, look after the relationship between the husband and the wife, but also we try to cultivate in our children as well the best sort of manners and lead by example. And uh, Islam attaches great importance to the upbringing of children and advises the newlywed couple to pray to God for the protection of the would-be born child from Satan and its influences. And at the age of six, children are encouraged to offer formal prayers. And thus by the age of 10, most children, uh, they become punctual and well-versed in this. And if some unfortunate ones do not adapt to offering prayers regularly, then remedial measures may be taken to make them realize the importance and obligation of offering prayers diligently. And it is one of the obligations of parents to educate and train children in the right manner. Um, and the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, if we look at some of his narration, he said at one place, that a child is born with pure nature and if parents make it a Jew, a Christian or an atheist through imparting a particular teaching and providing a particular model through their own conduct, meaning that uh, the the child itself will be in direct influence of the, of the parents itself. So it is the duty of the parents that when it does come to moral upbringing, they do it in the best man and again the holy prophet peace be upon him said that a person who has been blessed with one or two daughters and he educates them brings them up in the right manner will enter paradise and this narration itself highlights that uh, parents should uh, should pay uh, a enormous amount of attention in the 
education of the children as well. And I think I'll in conclude this particular segment with the writings of the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, um, on this particular topic, the founder of the MD Muslim community. Azamza Ghulam Ahmed, the Promised Messiah, peace be upon him, he says that people have great desire to have children and children are bestowed on them. But it is, it is never observed that they strive for making them good, pious and obedient servants of God. Neither do they pray for them, nor keep in view different grades of upbringing. That is, they do not act according to the requirements of time. And Promise Messiah, peace be upon him, he says that my personal condition in this regard is that there is no prayer or salat of mine in which I do not implore for my friends, followers, children and wife. And there are several parents who put their children in bad habits and when they become when they start acquiring evil in the beginning they do not warn them and the result is that day by day they become daring and bold in evil ways and a story is told that a boy was being hanged for criminal deeds and at the last moment he expressed his desire to see his mother and when his mother came he went close to her and said that I want to suck your tongue and when she stretched her tongue out, he bit it. And when questioned, he replied um, that uh, it was my mother actually who, whenever I did something wrong, she always encouraged, she always uh, protected me and never uh, told me off for any of the wrongdoing. So much so that I became uh, to what I am today. So uh, th- with that, we can conclude this particular segment. Um, and uh, I'll hand the mic on to Brother Lee to close this uh, this segment. Thank you. Yes, uh, we can, uh, uh, as mentioned, uh, we can close this program now. It leaves us to thank those people who have been involved in its uh, production, in its uh, running. Uh, so a producer is worthy of thanks, uh, Brira Sohail uh, Mansoor, uh, as uh, is... Uh, the uh, trainee producer, uh, the assistant producer, uh, Dr. Sakib uh, Ahmed, uh, and uh, the lead producer, Barira uh, Mansoor, as mentioned. Uh, researchers uh, Basma Latif and uh, Neha Latif, uh, also worthy of our thanks. And um, uh, our gratitude, I think we also need to acknowledge uh, when we're talking about gratitude, uh, our uh, intrepid um, engineer beavering away in the control room, uh, Armaghan, uh, for his his efforts, and let's not forget our contributors, to Ed, Dr. Ed, uh, Mr. Ed Pawson, and Doctors James Webb and Dr. Alastair Sutcliffe. So, until the next time, uh, oh, thank you to our listeners as well for staying uh, staying on. Do join us again. Uh, we'll be coming back uh, in, in God willing on Friday. So until then. Uh, the breakfast show is going to continue Monday to Friday, 7 to 9. It's uh, until then. Assalamu alaikum from me and assalamu alaikum from Yawn Takir. <laughs>